Hello, everybody. This is your friendly neighborhood podcast host, that guy named John from the About to Review podcast. This episode you are about to listen to was actually recorded quite a few weeks in the past, but due to some health issues, it was not able to be released. So now that I am feeling a bit better, I wanted to start releasing some of these episodes from the back catalog with various guests and movies from a few weeks ago. You will notice the dates on these correspond to when the movies that we're talking about in each episode were coming out. So when you load up your podcast app and you see a new episode, but the date is from May, that is why. There will be some new episodes being released very soon now that I am feeling better. And I wanted to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all of your support that I have received on social media and various emails and messages. It really means a lot as I, as I kind of work through uh, this issue. So with all of that being said, again, thank you for your support and enjoy this episode, A Blast from the Past. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's edition of the About to Review podcast. Here to amplify diverse voices in media, I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is listed on everything, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and you can also stream the episodes directly from the website aboutreview.com, which is where you will find links to the guests and everything that is discussed. You can also support the show from that website. From the support tab, there's a PayPal link and an Amazon wish list as well. And follow the podcast on social media at About to Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This week, I am joined by a returning special guest, the one, the only, Isabella Price, the Oprah of the Underworld. <laughs> Hi, it's good to be back. It's good to be out of the cave, out of the crypt, uh, and to return back as your guest. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we were able to see uh, this week, so Iz Izzy and I saw The Intruder, which we will be talking about and reviewing. Um, I was able to see an advanced screening of Tolkien, which will also be discussed, as well as some geek news, and then... The Seattle International Film Festival is starting very soon. So we will end the episode with just a couple movies that we are looking forward to. Before we get into all of that, we'll go to the original theme song created by Damon Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. We are back after the theme song. So a couple of geek news items at the top of the show. Now, Izzy and I both have played video games here and there, every now and then. One of the video games from my childhood, one of the only video games that was going as fast as my ADHD brain as a child, was Sonic the Hedgehog on the Sega Genesis. Uh, do you have memories of this game? 
yes, uh, definitely. Sonic was one of the most popular games of my childhood. At first, I didn't know where you were going with this until <laughs> <laughs> until just now because uh, this trailer uh, haunts me. Mm-hmm. I last night in a hot like in a in a in a sweat. My bed sheets were soaked. Uh, I've never seen something so terrifying, and I watch horror movies for funsies. On the regular. (laughs) (laughs) And this trailer was the stuff of nightmares. Uh, So, of course, we're talking about the Sonic live-action trailer. Yes. So, so this movie has been, you know, marketed for a while. We started seeing posters. We had a couple, like, images, but they released their first full trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog live-action movie starring Jim Carrey. Uh, wowza. The internet. <laughs> um, sometimes... See, this is the thing. I, I don't understand because this is what the furries wanted. This is what the furries demanded. This is the future they wanted. <laughs> we don't have Tumblr anymore. Uh, I felt like this is what everybody... This filled a Tumblr-sized hole inside of everybody's heart. Um, it's is not what you expect it to look like. Um, nope. It's weird. He doesn't look like how you think he would look. Or I, look I mean, like any iteration of the character for the past 30 years. <laughs> but I mean, also, how how should he look? Like, what should, so what should he look like? Disproportionate, skinny, tall legs, kind of a little pot belly. Big, crazy goggle eyes. Whereas this one, we get what looks like a kid in footy pajamas with a it mouse does. that looks like a raccoon that is like yes. really narrow. Like it was just a mess. Sometimes when they drop a trailer, it breaks the internet because it gets hundreds of millions of views. This one broke the internet because people were like, what is this creature and how <laughs> dare you? I love it. It looks like an eight-year-old kid uh, in mm-hmm. a suit. It's really bizarre. I love that he has human teeth. Um, yeah, because... that, oh, that is uncomfortable. So weird. <laughs> because why? Why does he have human teeth? Um, I mean, I guess it doesn't make sense for him to have hedgehog teeth because I don't know if you've ever seen hedgehog teeth, but they are also terrifying. Yeah, they're really I... just spiky Yeah, they just, it's like Nosferatu teeth, you know? There's just two... Mm ones and then the rest of them are small pointy ones it's very bizarre um but at the same time yeah it just doesn't look uh it's weird it's like the pokemon the live action pokemon also don't like the way that a lot of them are designed interesting because uh, you don't really realize when you look at pokemon they're just cute and they're animated but then when you see them in real life with like skin textures mm, yeah that's where you're like, I didn't need to know that they were just hairless, textured. Some of them look real genital-like, and it's just, <laughs> I absolutely hate it. I, that one is is going to be, they should just cover them all in fur. Yeah. Some look, have skin, like human skin, and I hate it. Yeah, it's going to be weird to see, but what is crazy about the Sonic trailer is that The internet freaked out, as the internet is wont to do, but so much so that the director of Sonic, (laughs) Jeff Fowler, went on Twitter two days after they dropped the trailer, and this is the exact tweet. Thank you for the support and the criticism. The message is loud and clear. 
You aren't happy with the design and you want changes. It's going to happen. Everyone at Paramount and Sega are fully committed to making this character the best he can be. Hashtag Sonic movie. Hashtag gotta fix fast. <laughs> um, See, wow. Has that ever happened? I feel like they've gone back and they've fixed some stuff in post where it's like, okay, this design isn't really working out. But to change a major, the major character of a movie to change their design completely. And then, I mean, isn't that, if you make his eyes bigger, isn't that going to mess up the eye line? Like, isn't there going to be a bunch of like head to like torso stuff that you're going to mess yeah, up? Yeah, this is, this is I, going to be fascinating how they do this. <laughs> and animation or any movie where you're, you are mixing live action and animation, this takes years. They now yeah. have eh, five months to completely redo their central animated character. We have no idea. I would not be surprised if like three quarters of the way through the movie, we get tails or we maybe get knuckles in like a post credit uh, scene. If this is what Sonic looks like and we have not <laughs> seen any of the other characters, this could be a way for them to be like, okay, luckily nobody has seen the other characters Time to fix those also. This is unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me, right? I mean, it, it makes sense to make a Sonic movie. The IP's been out there. Sure. There's no major going on in the Sonic world right now. So I understand that, especially since Sonic is such a huge meme now. Mm -hmm. um, I Gotta Go Fast was a meme. Yeah. Um, and so... <laughs> To see it now being used in the marketing for something, like, almost non-ironically. It's not ironic and ironic at the same time. Uh, it's very strange. Uh, it makes sense to me to do it. Jim Carrey in this movie is also just... Um, I guess it's because for so... For, for like a hot minute now, Jim Carrey's just been making like political paintings in the woods somewhere. Yeah, kind of. Um, <laughs> that's all I've been thinking about with him for for a minute. So to see him uh, in this movie, um, it, it everything feels bad. It just feels <laughs> bad. It feels like one of those creepy pastas where it's like you don't remember the lost episode of SpongeBob mm. or like. The, uh, have you ever heard of like crystal caves? Have you ever heard of that? That yeah, classic? yeah. It's like this lost episode of a children's cartoon that you blocked out of your memory as a kid because it was too traumatizing. That's kind of what this reminds me of. Yeah. So we will see what ends up happening with this in, I want to say like probably two months from now. We are not going to hear anything about this. No <laughs> screenshots, no nothing for like two months. And then they're going to be like, here is the new trailer. So, but it is interesting. So this movie was actually filmed uh, up in BC. And like, I know a couple of the people who are in this movie after kind of covering some Vancouver film festivals over the past couple of years. So that was really cool, you know, to see, you know, my friends in that. But then the rest of it, I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> so, yeah. Ask them what's wrong with this movie. Ask them to fix it right now. Right. Give them this. <laughs> yeah, luckily, uh, they are not the animators who are going to be working 100-hour work weeks for the next, like, four months. Yeah, that's so sad. RIP to those animators. Yeah. Salute, Seriously. Uh, so good luck with that. 
to now on to a movie, the complete opposite. A movie that everybody in the world has seen and is excited about, Avengers Endgame, officially... What is that? (laughs) Right. didn't hear about that. Oh, the, I, why did I invite her on? The one person in the world <laughs> who does not know about this. Just give me a quick summary. Give me a five-second summary. <laughs> right. A uh, bunch of characters fight a bad guy, and it was really cool. <laughs> okay. Okay, that works, actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it has officially, in less than a week, $1.6 billion in ticket sales. This is insane. Like, Tim said it on an episode when we reviewed Endgame, where he was like, this is going to break $3 billion. And if this is what it did in the first week, 1.6, like, it is going to get there. That's that's a lot. I mean, I feel like, what what was Avatar? What was Avatar's, like, highest? So the uh, all-time, and uh I just recently pulled those up. Do, 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 do. Avatar is at 2.7. Almost 2.8, okay. like 2.787. Okay. So Endgame is definitely going to top that. Um, and it rightly so, because Avatar, no offense, uh, actually full offense, movie sucks. Yep. Movie's so bad. Totally I agree. I stand in that. Um, the movie is so wild because it was so big, right? And I was in film school at this time. It's so wild because to go back to film school where literally all we talk about is films day in and day out and not a single person mentioned that movie. Yeah. I can't tell you the names of the characters. Nope. I can't tell you. I remember the Navi. I remember that. The big cats. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. I, I can't remember anything else uh, to go along with that movie, which is wild because it was the biggest movie in the world. And I can't remember anything special or particular about it i'm glad that it'll be toppled by endgame nobody deserves it more than these guys um i it's interesting i mean i I, they're gonna front load it it's gonna make a a billion dollars up front and then i'm curious to see how the drop-off happens if people are gonna do repeat viewings if they're gonna go back to see it or if people are going to, if it's just going to drop off because everyone saw it opening weekend, which usually happens, right? Everyone goes to see it opening weekend because they don't want to get spoilers and everything like that. And then the drop off is huge, which usually happens for like Avengers movies and also Star Wars movies. So I'm curious to see if people are just going to keep going to go see. Who hasn't seen this movie? Who? That is the thing is, the weird thing with Avatar is I think one of the big reasons so many people saw it, James Cameron, when he went to make that movie, which was a labor of love, he was like, hey, I need my cameras to do this. And the studio was like, uh, Mr. Cameron, sir, that camera does not exist. And so he put his money where his mouth is and developed camera technologies for 3D that we had that had never existed that now have kind of become industry standards. So people were seeing a 3D movie that they had never seen before. But that being said, at $2.8 billion, even my friends who like that movie, I'm like, cool, give me a scene. One scene. One 60-second yeah. scene from that movie. And nobody can do it. And I'm like, why? Like, I think it was just this technological marvel. And 
it stayed in theaters. This is something that people kind of forget. It was in theaters for 34 weeks. Really? 34 weeks. Like, that is madness. And so with Endgame, I think that is something that is going to be one of the issues is, like, how many theaters it can be in. Because these days, retail space in a theater is is just tough. Um, yeah. Damien from the Curly Nerd Podcast, one of my best friends, he took a picture when he saw it at one theater. They have 12 screens. Every screen was playing Avengers Endgame. Yeah, they'll do it for the opening weekend. And then as the weeks go on, but I think... This movie is going to stay in theaters. I think by the time Star Wars comes out in at Christmas, they'll still be in game somewhere. They'll be like somewhere in like Puyallup or something like that. They'll Probably still be showing. at a four screen <laughs> theater. <laughs> so I think that uh, the movie has longevity. Uh, has it? It's already gone worldwide. Has oh yeah. It already? Yeah. It. Let me see. So the domestic is four fifty two, four hundred fifty two million. The foreign is 1.2 billion. Wow. That's, <laughs> I mean, God love them. God bless them. I honestly feel like this is it. I, I do not want any. We don't need to get any bigger than this. I feel like this is as big as we need to get. Because when you keep raising the bar like this, smaller films that don't make that kind of money... It, it it seems like they're disappointing or that they're box office failures, but they're not. It's just because of the fact that like this other movie made a billion dollars and will make $3 billion. And there's all these other indie movies. This is, we're not going to get into the death of, of cinema, right. which is <laughs> where I'm leading you. Um, but it, it just feels like that bar is very high. I'm super nervous for star Wars. Mm. Um, I feel like if Star Wars doesn't make, doesn't hover above a billion dollars, I don't know. Kathleen Kennedy might be looking for a new job. I'm so nervous for her. Like, I, I think she, I mean, that is valid. I think she is solid. I think that movie, okay. again, especially with front-loading it when you are ending the Skywalker saga. Mm. I mean, so many people are going to see that movie, whether they go to hate watch it, which we know the internet loves to do. Or the yes. people who are legitimately excited about watching it, it still is going to make an insane amount of money. Again, whether it has the longevity to stay in theaters long term is the tough part. But that movie, like, it is it is going to make a lot. Okay. I mean, I, I don't... This billion-dollar thing is just so high. Because what the last movie that made a billion dollars was Avatar. And then before that, I think, was Titanic. So... You know, it's not really something that a lot of movies get to. Yeah. Um, I think that they shouldn't. Um, uh, we all know that people are going to the movies less and less, um, even though the box office numbers are getting bigger and bigger because of temple movies like this. But it it was just, I, I just always think, how big can they get? Like, I mean, even though I contributed to this problem, because I've already seen this movie three times. Right. Mm-hmm. Putting once in 3D, which was a total waste of my yeah, money. Dumb. <laughs> Another thing, um, and and I definitely would see it three more times. Yeah. Uh, hands down, I would go see that movie again. But it's just wild to me 
that you have these movies that are affecting the overall box office score like that. It's it's just throwing, when you throw this much money, it, it throws the whole system out of whack. So uh, this is it, you guys. Stop making movies like this. Rest. Everybody calm down. Kevin Feige. 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 Mm-hmm. He needs to chill. Okay. Rest. Yeah. It, it, it is madness. Um, and then on to some quick TV show news, which is also Disney, because soon enough, the entire geek news section is just going to be Disney news. Terrifying. Uh, Ron Howard, in a recent on a recent podcast, they were just talking about his life and career, and he brought up that there could very well be a Willow show in development. Yay! Yes, 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 yes. I am 100% on board with that. Uh, yes. Because I'm not sure. Did you ever read? So they came out with a trilogy of books based off of Willow, like in the mid-90s. And I think the latest one was like 2000. So there were three books that they did with Alora as the, like the main character. And it was her story. Mm. This is something where like Warwick Davis was so young when they made Willow. Having him, like, even as the proper age he is now, and Alora, like, she would be 25, 20, like, perfect. Like, line it up, make it happen. Like, it would be phenomenal. I am so in for this. Wait, so you want to bring back Warwick Davis for this movie? For the show? Yeah, as her dad? Absolutely. Uh, okay, yes, okay. Like, yes. And have not have the show be about him, but basically, he is an older guy now. His daughter was this prophesied warrior, you know, that would do all of this stuff. And now she is. Now she is in her late 20s, 30s. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Back up. So, wait. Are we... Has it? Have they announced what this is going to be about? Where this takes place? No. <laughs> he basically okay. just this said that new, a, show, a show is in development. They have had some talks about it. If they were to do what the books did, because... When George Lucas did Willow, he had planned it as more of a trilogy type thing or multimedia thing. Willow, unfortunately, just did not make that much money at the box office. And this is back in the 80s when they were like, oh, uh, your movie did not make enough to get by. And you never heard from it again. It was not like we are in now when it was like, well, it made this. How about we do X, Y, Z to get more fan engagement and boost it up? Back then it was like, you made it. It was done. But with right. this, with Ron Howard being involved, I think that would be amazing. So, yeah, I, I would okay. love for this to happen. Yeah, Ron Howard, um, who uh, I, I think is uh, – he's so skilled at being uh, just so mediocre – um, he... <laughs> wow. <laughs> Grah, shots uh... fired. <laughs> I've never seen somebody who makes uh, uh, just adequate films. Uh, he's just an average B minus student. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, him producing, I would really like to see him as a producer role, maybe bring in some young directors for this uh, kind of a thing. And I'm, I, what I was imagining was they were going to expand on the movie, that they were gonna take the movie and make that into a series. Um, I oh did, not a not a continuation, but right. an act like more of a remake then. Yeah, it's more of a remake, a hmm. reimagining. 
an expansion because I didn't I didn't read the books because I didn't learn how to read until I was 35. Fair. Um, and so I'm like R. Kelly in that sense. Well, because um, since you are a princess, things were just read to you. You were never expected <laughs> to read on your own. Listen, listen, in my uh, hellscape cavern dungeon uh, <laughs> lair, I have demons. What do you think demons are for? They're there. They read me, you know, the biography of serial killers to get me to sleep. You know, mm-hmm. that's so I didn't read this as a kid. Uh, it sounds like you were a real nerd. Um, but... Shocking. <laughs> but I, yeah, that's what I kind of thought because they're doing also the Dark Crystal as well. The Dark Crystal yeah. show is out on Netflix. So we're in that. This is this is my sweet spot. Okay. Jokes aside, this this period of 80s, 90s fantasy films, that is my sweet spot. Like, I am a, a willow, a dark crystal, a labyrinth, a never-ending story. Mm-hmm. Like, that time period of, like, weird fantasy films for kids who didn't have a lot of friends – those that's that's where I'm at right now and that they're bringing all this stuff back especially the Dark Crystal and Willow because those two movies didn't really do well and so now that they're having revitalization for those films because the fan base is so huge I mean it's such a cult classic kind of a kind of a media so I'm I'm excited for this this better not be a tease they better follow through with this or else I'm I'm fighting Opie I'm fighting Ron Howard (laughs) fist to fist I would love to see that Uh, Both the TV show and you fight Ron Howard. (laughs) So we can make that happen. Uh, So yeah, so I'm on board for that. And then to wrap up the geek news, uh, a couple bits of of sad news. Uh, A couple legends in the world of film uh, passed away rather quickly uh, recently. So Peter Mayhew, the iconic, larger-than-life, humble Chewbacca himself, uh, passed away. Uh, This past week, he had been dealing with some health problems for quite a long time. Um, And it was it just was one of those things where gigantism in general, the human body is just not meant to go through a lot of that. And then when we saw Kenny Baker, who played R2-D2 or not played, but was in the R2-D2 suit when he passed away in 2016, it was kind of both ends of the spectrum where dwarfism and gigantism, it just, it puts so much strain on the human body. And so, but both of them lived a very long time. So Peter Mayhew, yeah, passed away. His family put up this beautiful letter. The fan art that has been going around with this has just broken me. Several times there were ones where you see Chewbacca, like at kind of the pearly gates, and Leia is giving him a medal that he never got yeah. in the original Star Wars. And it was just like, right. ugh. But you're right about that. I mean, that, um, full disclosure, I didn't know that he was still alive. So mm-hmm. I was a little shocked by that because of the fact that Gigant is, like, as as huge of a guy as he was, I mean, he lived a very long life. That condition is such a strain on the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like very active. I mean, I saw pictures of him from the past few years of him going to fan events. So he was still out there. He was still doing things. You know, it feels like, um, it, it feels like when Stan Lee passed away, like Stan Lee was still 
he just stopped going to fan events like maybe two years before he not even two years i mean it was only within the last year of his life because there was this big legal battle and he the last couple years of stan's life were were rough for a lot of personal reasons but as far as health like he was doing okay there were a couple videos of him when he started going downhill that were really really just heartbreaking where there was one where he is at a table doing some signings and like one of his handlers or PR people is right behind him and he's trying to sign his name. And they're like S T A N L. And the other, he was like barely doing it. It was like, you know, so, but with that, I mean, yeah, just like, so it was, I mean, Stan was also 90 (laughs) with Peter. A lot of the past couple fan events he went to, like he was in a wheelchair. He Mm -hmm. could barely get around. He passed the Chewbacca torch onto that young, is he Swedish? His name is like Junus yeah, or something. Yeah, he's like he's from the Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah, and so like he, I mean, Peter Mayhew was still being Chewbacca until very recently. He kind of passed the torch on. Uh, the, what is funny is so many of my friends, and I'm sure your friends, because we share a lot of them, are sharing pictures that they took with Peter at various cons, mm-hmm. and there are ones where Peter is sitting on a stool or a chair, still as tall as a lot of people who are like. Five eight, five nine, and this is him sitting down, and he is that yeah. tall. So he was just, he was huge. Every story we heard about him, he was just humble. He was gracious with fans. So that was just a big blow uh, to just the film and Star Wars and geek community. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I just I feel like uh, with that condition, he lived a really long life. Mm-hmm. Like. It, you know, the same thing kind of like where I was going with Stan, Stan Lee is that for his, uh, for what they were doing, they they really, I mean, they were going at it much longer than I think most other people. And so I, I think that with his legacy, um, passing it over to the new, uh, the new guy he's playing, Chewbacca, um, who sidebar is the tallest drink of milk that I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I would climb that like a coconut tree. Yeah. yeah. I just looked up the the new actor's name. So yeah, Junus Sotomo, S-U-O-T-A-M-O. <laughs> he is 6'11 and a half. And it was like, bro, really? Why do you have to put the half in there? Like, we get it. <laughs> we get it. Yes, the D. So, yes. so tall. So tall. Yeah. Uh so definitely rest in peace to Peter Mayhew and, yes. and thoughts go out to his family and just the Star Wars family in general because all of the Mark Hamill put up this beautiful thing and it was just like mm-hmm. it was it was pretty incredible. Uh, and then the other giant in filmmaking, John Singleton, had a very quick um, spiral. Uh, he was admitted to the hospital after a stroke. I want to say like a week ago or a week or so. Mm-hmm. Went into a coma, and then the family uh, decided to take him off of life support. And John Singleton, for those who do not know, not only was an incredible director, but when you think of his seminal film, which is Boys in the Hood, that was his first movie. So 1992, oh. he had just finished college. That was his first movie. And huh. so in that, he was the youngest Uh, He was the first African-American to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Director, and he was nominated for Screenplay. He was the youngest director nominated. 
I mean, the guy's legacy is just huge. Now, see, this is this is the difference, right, between Peter Mayhew and John Singleton. John Singleton had a a stroke um, at how he was like in his mid fifties. Yeah, which he, is yeah something like that. So young. Um, the idea that he had that he went into a coma and he had a stroke in his mid fifties that is such a young age to have something like that. And uh, there were a couple of, actually, Dion Taylor, the director of the movie that we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. was saying that um, he had been complaining about issues, health issues, uh, and did not get them checked out and didn't, uh, which, you know, men do. Men do that a yeah, lot. unfortunately. And it's, it's an issue, uh, especially black men do not, one, they don't take care of themselves as much as they should, don't get checked out as much as they should. And then also, I think that healthcare uh, professionals don't pay as much attention to them as they should. Um, I know that there's, it's really rampant in like the black female communities. I mean, you see somebody like Serena Williams, who is like the biggest athlete in the world. And even she had problems telling her doctor, Beyonce, who in her documentary, uh, Homecoming, was talking about how she was having complications with her babies and her doctors kind of, how do you blow off Beyonce like that? Right. You know, really, you know, how do you not believe that, you know? And and so to see a person like John Singleton, it just really shows me that, like, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are, how much money you make. This human condition, particularly when you're a black person, it's so fraught. It's everybody is vulnerable. Um, and he died so young. And and I mean, Scorsese's still making films in his, what, 70s, 80s? Yeah. You know, Singleton still, he still had films in development. Mm-hmm. He was still making films, you know. And we'll never know now what those films are going to be. His films are like central to black life like his his films shaped blackness before then you really didn't have black life like unfiltered unadulterated black life just being shown in films the way that he had so much of this um so much of this uh just unencumbered unfiltered look at at blackness and it, it influenced so many. I was just talking to my friend, uh, it was like a couple of weeks ago, about the the thick line between a John Singleton movie and a movie like Dope. You oh, know? for was, sure. You know, that so many, because for so long, so many people had com- been comparing Dope to, um, oh man, what is the name of that white guy who made The Breakfast Club? <laughs> John Hughes. <laughs> John Hughes. People had been comparing movie to to john a john hughes style movie the kind of like teens you know led by this kind of precocious boy and for me dope feels a lot like it's a it's a continuation of a, of a john singleton type of film um, but just for a different kind of an audience and so it, his mark he really did not get the credit that he deserved i mean he he really should have been he was always put in this box of black filmmakers you know instead of just being what he should have been regarded as, which is just one of the best filmmakers, American filmmakers of all time. And so now that he's passed, now we're revisiting him and now we're looking at his stuff and it's like, 
should have been doing this while he was alive. You yeah, know? I mean, this we see it all the time, especially in creative mediums, where it is yeah. like, oh, this person passed. Here's a retrospective look at their career. And it was like, okay, why were we not praising them while they were here? Because when you look at right. his films, I mean, he drew from his real life experience growing up in South Central, where those of us who have never been there, a lot of people, you know, have never, will never know what that experience is like. Watching movies like Boys in the Hood, Poetic Justice, Higher yeah. Learning, like he drew from his real life and was like, this is, this was it. You know, this is, yeah. these are the types of people I grew up with. These are the types of situations I was around. Here it is, America, <laughs> in a time when, yeah, especially black filmmakers were having a difficult time getting films like that produced. And again, his first movie is Boys in the Hood is just is crazy. I mean, Ice Cube talks about, you know, talked about John Singleton all the time. And he was yeah. like, he gave me a shot. He was like, the amount of movies that I've done since then are because of him. So many yeah. people from Boys in the Hood either were just starting or like that was Ice Cube's first movie. And so it is it is pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I think it's really sad. I think it's really sad how much he was sort of marginalized and put in this box and categorized. I think it's sad that he died so young um, uh, of what might have been something entirely preventable. I think that this should should be a reminder to men in particular and black men in particular. If you think something's wrong, you have to go get it checked out. Do not ignore your body because of the fact that you feel like you have to you know, be a man about certain issues or you can't complain about stuff because you ignore that stuff, it develops into a heart attack, an aneurysm. Uh, and it, it just, the way that it happened, because I, I heard he'd gone into a coma, then I thought I heard that he'd come out and then I heard that he went back in and he and he had passed. And it was just so fast, you know, and for him, for that to happen, I was talking to my grandmother who's, um, she's a, she was a nurse and we were talking about it and she was saying, he's so young, he'll make a full recovery because mm. if you have one of those, you can come back from that. If you're, if you're a young man, you can come out of that. And for him not to was really shocking for me and really scary. And so John Singleton, Spike, I know Spike Lee is probably like just somewhere just crushed. Um, because they had such a good relationship. They were so close. Th those two guys, contemporaries, were doing something that nobody else was doing. Yeah. And John Singleton opened the door for black filmmakers everywhere. Uh, and he held the door open for a lot of us to be able to get through. And for him to pass, I really do feel like he didn't get the the credit in life. And so I guess now... We're going to have to honor him in death, which feels so, it, it, it just feels so lame. Yeah, it, it is. I think the important thing is that, yeah, people, all of his films are available somewhere, whether it's on mm. HBO, something like that. Take some time this weekend, watch one of those. Four Brothers is a movie that he did with like Mark Wahlberg. Another just great movie. I mean, Too Fast, Too Furious. He also did that one. I mean, but it was that was before the Fast and the Furious movies just became superhero movies, essentially. I mean, my guy made a lot of money on those films. Yes, he did. 
So, uh, but yeah, so he, so rest in peace, John Singleton, uh, who passed away at 51 years old, and then Peter Mayhew was 74. So, uh, yeah. So rest, yeah, that's so young. Very young. So, uh, but yeah, so that is kind of the wrapping up the geek news. And then the last thing, and I mentioned it last week as well, and I was telling Izzy about this recently, the membership for the Seattle Film Critics Society is open. I highly encourage people to go and apply, whether you are a blogger, podcaster, you write for your school newspaper. I mean, whether it is UW or Central Washington, something like that, I encourage you to apply. Just get in there. I would love some fresh blood in there to just talk about films because all of us are passionate uh, one way or another with films. So hint, hint, <clears throat> Izzy. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, membership is open. The link is in the description below. All right. Now, on to the reviews for this episode. So, Izzy, Isabella what? of the Nocturnal Emissions yes. Podcast, please <laughs> tell us all about the intruder that we saw earlier this week. Wow. Where where should I even start? <laughs> I mean... Uh... Outstanding, unique, original, a Criterion Collection. Where is the Where is the Oscar? Where is the Country Music Award? The Tony, the Grammy. Uh, Wherever they are, keep them away from this movie. <laughs> this movie deserves none of those things. All right, here's the deal, right? Dion Taylor, uh, a, a director that I am fascinated with. He feels like Jordan Peele's tether. Like he feels <laughs> whatever. <laughs> the opposite that Jordan Peele is doing. Jordan Peele is out here being like, I'm trying to make movies for the people, uh, something creative, something unique, something interesting. And Dion Taylor is like, I want to check. And so (laughs) the movie is a thriller starring uh, Megan Good and your boy... Michael Ealy. Michael Ealy. (laughs) That blue-eyed devil. (laughs) Um... Uh, with Dennis Quaid pulling full Nick Cage throughout this movie. Um, and Michael Ely and Megan Good are a young couple who are buying a house in Sonoma, of all places. But, you know, whatever. Uh, they buy it from Dennis Quaid. He's uh, He's got some screws loose. And he loves his property. And he possibly loves his property uh, a little bit too much. Um, and he's got some issues. He also has the hots. For Megan Good, uh, whose booty is on 12. I was going to say, he has the hots for her because he has eyes. (laughs) She is looking... First of all, we didn't talk about this before. This girl is wearing a a negligee throughout this entire film. Yeah. It's Christmas time, and she is out here with lingerie on and like a, a thin cardigan on top of her. Um, in the the tightest, the most painted on of apple bottom jeans that I've ever seen in my life, her butt is like. First of all, it's Megan Good, who is gorgeous. Yes, I mean, argue, inarguably, you can't argue that she's not a gorgeous woman. Um, but she is wearing barely clothes, barely one step above yoga pants uh, in this <laughs> in this movie, and I've never seen Dennis Quaid quite like this before um he is just undressing her with his eyes Um, america's dad dennis quaid 
Um, he's got the hots for her. It's wild to see. The movie is really interesting. I, I wrote about this. One of the things um, on on my uh, review blog is mm-hmm. philipprice.com. There's, there's a plug. I'm getting better at plugging. Good, good. I'm learning from the master over here. Um, and so, and so one of the things that I think is really interesting about this movie is that there is no racial context throughout the entire film, which is so strange. You think here's this white guy, he's a homeowner. He's selling this home to a black family or black couple. You think there'd be some sort of racial tension? There is none. It, it's a weird world where I guess racism never happened. Um, I guess everybody in this world saw Green Book and they were just... And, and, and racism got solved and they were like, boom, ha, whoo, <laughs> done with that <laughs> problem. But just so, it's fascinating to me. And I'm not saying this necessarily as a critique. I'm yeah. not necessarily saying this as a bad thing because I, I've thought about this before. Can we have a movie with black characters and the central conflict of the movie not be racism. And this movie kind of sort of does that, but it just feels so strange expecting something real, a normal issue like racism to happen. And it never does. There's not even, oh my God, say say what you were talking about or you were like, there's not even like a chocolate. Say, say that. I say mean, that so that is the thing it. is so with Dennis Quaid, I mean, literally undressing this woman with his eyes, and she is barely wearing clothes. She answers the door in her robe more than once. Yes. And it was like, (laughs) that was just weird. But there were so many times when he is being so creepy and, like, right over her shoulder. And and, and it was so close. And I was waiting for him to be like, I've always wanted to try chocolate or something ridiculous. (laughs) You know, because it was it was right there. I mean, you were just waiting yes. for that other shoe to drop, and it never did. And again, it was yeah. – and you pointed that out right after we saw this, and it was a fascinating observation because a young black couple buying a house, I mean, in the wine country, and nobody – like, even when they go into town and they kind of have a little interaction, like, nothing happens. Nothing gets said. Yes. It is fascinating. It's, yeah, it's fascinating. It's not necessarily bad. It's no. just, it was so distracting um, because it just was like, I, the whole entire time I was like, what world is this in? What fantasy world? And I went back and I looked up the demographics for Sonoma County for that. And Sonoma County is 89% white people. Oh, boy. Woo. But the movie, <laughs> which is like, that's, I blows my mind. And I think it's like it's less than one percent black people um, in that in that area mm-hmm. of California. But if you look at the movie, they, the movie like paints it as though that part of the country is the most diverse place on earth. Like the background characters, there's Asian people, Hispanic people, black people. They're all mixing together. They go to an ice cream shop. There's a little, little swirly black girl who's like doing oh, this. That was so – so that was where – and I think because – so we see a scene early on where we immediately grow to hate Michael Ely <laughs> because he is just the stereotypical just creepy yeah. dude. Regardless of ethnicity, he is the creepy dude like your girlfriend, your partner is 
right there, ten feet away, and here you are. Yeah. Oh yeah. Again, like not you did not wait for her to like go to the bathroom or go back to the car. Within earshot, he is like, uh, because he asked and he has the line where she was like, he was like, what kind of ice cream do I have? She was like, we have some chocolate and some vanilla, and he was like, oh, you what what about a swirl? What about and she was like, ah, and it was like, what is happening right now? And Megan Good is sitting there hearing all of this. And then yeah. he has the audacity when they get home, and he was like, what, I can't just talk to her? And it was like, my guy. It's so bizarre, because everybody in this movie is so one note, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is is the same character that they are from the beginning as they are from the end, you know? I mean, I would I would argue that Michael Ely's character, whose name is Scott, by the way, is always... <laughs> of course it like- is. <laughs> because there is not... A single black man on earth named Scott. That is just not a name <laughs> that people name their black children, but fine. Scott, uh, Scott Russell. <laughs> Scott Russell, aka, like that is somebody, a quarterback at BYU is Scott Russell. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. And her name is Annie Russell. Yes. Um, it's bizarre. It's almost like what I would guess is that the script was written before it was adapted. And then Dion Taylor, the director, took it and adapted it in his own way and recasted it. Sure. Because that's the only reason why they have those dumb names. And that's the only reason why they never address race. Probably because of the fact that the characters were originally white. And so race was not an issue. And, and Dion Taylor, to his credit, if that is the true story that we are we are putting together a VH1 True Hollywood story with this, <laughs> if that is the case, I mean, I kind of got to give him kudos for not having that part of the story and for not because right. it, it was just it would have been too easy. Like my comment right. about like Dennis Quaid saying something creepy to Megan Good, that would be easy, you know, and so he did not do that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, but it's it still goes back to this question. Uh, did he do this on purpose? Or if he did this on purpose, I, I need to retract my statements. Uh, because if he did this on purpose, he's a genius. The movie, the movie is definitely a guilty pleasure. It is definitely a movie that you watch with. Uh, it's the Lifetime Channel movie, uh, you know, Bastard Out of Carolina, Not Without My Daughter. Um, uh, you know, The Bad Doctor. I don't know if you watch Lifetime Channel movies. I was like, so whatever you are saying right now, I'm just going to trust you because I have no idea. <laughs> the Stepmother, The Nanny, classic bops from the Lifetime Channel movie. Okay. Um. <laughs> See, even though I grew up with a house full of women, I have three sisters and my mom, yeah. we never had cable, so we never had Lifetime. And so I was like, oh, ha ha, no. I, I, I managed to miss all of those. See, the thing is, though, is that the Lifetime channel, we don't give it enough credit because those movies were so terrifying. There's a reason why there's like a whole generation of women who do not want to date, who do not trust men, who like will like screen men. It's the Lifetime channel. Those movies were so intense because it was always like this man. He seems nice. He wants to kill you. But wait. (laughs) So this movie fits in perfectly. It's like a movie that you you have like a like a blush wine or maybe like a white wine spritzer. Uh, you get together with your girlfriends and you watch this movie. It, it, it's not good is a very strong word. And I don't know if I would use the words good. Mm-hmm. The I went to go see it with was having the time of their life. Yes. Uh, 
And it is a movie I believe that you should only watch in a group setting. It's only a movie for friends, possibly when you're drunk. It's not a movie that you watch to like, I don't even know. Where would you watch this movie? You can't watch this movie to relax because it's <laughs> so tense. Yeah. Um, the characters make stupid choices all throughout the film. Uh, it's not a movie that you watch because it's good. You know, it's not Citizen Kane. It's only a movie that I would say you watch, it, yeah, late night slumber party. Your your girlfriend just, she just dumped her boyfriend, right? Ah, and she perfect. Yes. And you're like, it's okay, Becky, Beccarinos, I got you. Come over. I got the bin. I got the binnies and the jays, okay? I got the henny, and we're going to get together, and we're going to get, we're going to put, we're going to make ice cream sundaes with Ben and Jerry's and Hennessy, which is a bop if you haven't tried it. Uh, and we're just <laughs> going to, we're just going to watch this terrible movie. Um, especially if your girlfriend, Beccarino, um, if she uh, just got dumped by her like sugar daddy, like her like 65 year old mm. uh, who resembles Dennis Quaid. And you're like, come over. We're gonna just delve deep into Michael Ely's baby blues. That baby jerk. Blues. I say that because uh, as with all <laughs> mixed mixed guys, there are certain people that we just do not like. And he is one of them because he is too good looking and he puts all of us to shame. <laughs> and I'm like, oh really? You have to have perfect caramel skin, great hair, and blue eyes? Get out of here. <laughs> he won the genetic lottery. He really he did. That jerk. And then you have other people it's like wild. like the Lopez's, which just look weird. Um, but, okay, we have to talk about the music in this movie because, <laughs> so it starts off like with, with some decent music, but this is, whatever Deion Taylor's budget was, he, he wanted somebody up here, and I'm indicating above my microphone. And then the producer was like, cool, cool. Find us somebody who is fifty thousand dollars less, and he was like, "But all but right, that's not, even, that's not even the thing, though, because there's eight different tracks, and there's like <laughs> there's a different musician for every single scene in this entire movie. Yeah, it doesn't. It makes no sense. If he wanted to save money, just hire one good SoundCloud hip hop uh, R and B yep. singer. Just hire one to do the soundtrack for it." What the music is so crazy. One, it never stops. There's just no, so oh no, it is relentless. <laughs> but again, none of it ties together. Like it would have a yeah. kind of generic movie score, you know, going on. But then it would go into like some SoundCloud trap, and then it would go into an R and B song that arguably, in one of the like four sex scenes we get, the first one, like on the kitchen counter, like that song. I was listening to that, and I was like, all right, I got to look the song up later. Uh, cause like really? that song was, it was, it was pretty sexy, but then the rest okay. of it was just a mess. So I looked at the composer. Uh, he is not what you would think the composer for this film is. I'm just going to say, uh, so first of all, he's an Emmy award winning composer, uh, Jeff Zanelli. Uh, it says is a standout in the film and television scoring industry. Uh, wow. Wow. He did Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay, but what did he do in Pirates of the Caribbean? He was the composer. The composer? He is listed as the composer. I I, I thought Hans Zimmerman was the composer for... He did. 
Um, let me see. Are you sure it's not Pirates of the Caribbean the ride? Or Pirates <laughs> of the the, the the video game? Dead Men Tell No Tales. The late the, like one of the latest ones. So yeah, he did the oh, music. What? Oh, Pirates of the Caribbean six. Oh yeah, it was like seven. five <laughs> five or six. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, he had a hand in it. So yeah, the music is all over the place. None of it feels right. Um Yeah. The other thing that was interesting with this movie is you have uh, Joseph Sakura, who plays Tommy in Power. <laughs> Tommy, who yes. He, <laughs> this is like if Tommy were pretending to be a preppy guy. Like, and it feels because his character is oddly enough the same, but it, it is as if this is a skit on Power where he is trying to convince Ghost of like, Oh, this is my straight white guy impression. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> and then you have this yeah, movie. I, I, I think it made sense because you he seems like the kind of guy that was like like a frat boy, like a lost frat boy. Um, too too mature uh, or too old to be in a frat anymore. Mm-hmm. Like he felt it <laughs> Tommy is so strange. First of all, can I just shout out to this guy who is now every black guy's best friend? He is every black guy's one white friend that they hang out with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this guy, and then oh man, what's his name? Gary Gary Watts is that his name? Do you know who I'm talking about? He I'm not is, sure. He's a stand-up comedian. Um, oh my goodness, now I can't remember this name. But there's this guy who looks exactly like Joseph Sakura, and I don't know what it is with like uh pale doughy redheads um but they're just he's just he came on the screen and i was like hey it's tough like it, there was a sigh of recognition in oh the whole yes everybody like <laughs> and, and again you you nailed it earlier when you said that this type of movie if this had been a regular press screening where there are yeah 25 of us you know professionals it would be one thing this theater was packed with aunties who were having the time of their life. And so when Tommy comes up there, this, you know, like you said earlier, this tall glass of milk, you know, this kind of doughy, you no, know, cute that's boy. No, what I said about Tommy. No, Tommy not, about, not about him, but about Junus or whatever. But, like, you get all of these aunties looking at Tommy, or look, I keep calling him Tommy, looking at uh, Sakura and being like, okay, we recognize him for power. Like, there was this, like, yes. familiar... Yeah, like sigh that went through the theater, and it was like that. That was just interesting. Mark my words, he is going to become a character actor where he plays the black, the white best friend. Instead of it being like you know how every movie has like a black best friend, mm-hmm. Tom is going to be the white best friend in every like urban audience film, every Tyler Perry movie. <laughs> the cast, which this movie is Tyler Perry adjacent. This like, is that is yeah woof. <laughs> If there had been if there had been uh, more jokes that did not land, it would be a Tyler Perry movie. If it couldn't be more, it, it could be more Tyler Perry if Tyler Perry had arrived in a wig and a dress. That would have just thrown it over the edge. Mm-hmm. But this movie feels like that. It feels like, um, oh man, now I'm I'm drawing a blank on all of my Tyler Perry films. All of them are the was- same. It does not matter. <laughs> There was what was the one with Beyonce and Idris Elba? That one is is a 
terrible. Is amazing. Terrible is the word you were looking for. <laughs> That's another film that you're like, we are drunk. I've got Henny and I've got cookie dough ice cream. Let's do this, girl. Um, so it it's just that movie is fascinating. It's it's interesting. It, it to me, it feels like black fantasy fulfillment of which we very rarely ever get. It's yeah. a, it's a film that arguably I would argue um, is specifically targeted towards the urban demographic. I'm doing quote, quote hand, but at the same time, you have these very wealthy black people. Also, the audience. One of the reactions. This audience was so loud that we went. We went to go see this with. But one of the biggest reactions was when they said how much the house cost. (laughs) They were like, this house is $3 million. And all the aunties in the, in the audience were like, Oh my God. $3 million. Oh, like everybody was having heart palpitations, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's a black film. You know, it's a film where it's very affluent black people who can afford to buy whatever house they want they have multiple cars. They have a, you know, they have the lifestyle that they want. They have the jobs they want, um, and uh, they got to kill a white dude. This movie is spoiler a spoiler alert. In a in a twist, <laughs> oh, not sorry. not even in a twist. In a this that was the first question I asked Izzy before we saw the movie. I was like, okay, how is he gonna die? And so not a big spoiler, but everybody going you into this movie. Yeah. Come on. You think, yeah. I mean, like, in this kind of movie, you know that it's going to be uh, that the, this couple has to live. They're too good looking. You think they're going to let this good looking, light skinned couple die <laughs> in this movie? You oh, kidding? Speaking, speaking of which, again, Megan Good. So, yes, she is gorgeous. Whatever yes. makeup company she partnered with <laughs> for this movie is the best makeup company in the world because we see her crying. No tears, no like no makeup running. We see her in the shower five different times. No makeup running. We see this woman in a bath, fully submerge herself underwater, come out of the bath, and her face is just beat. Perfect makeup, nothing smudging, and it was like, wow. (laughs) I am so glad that you picked up on that. I am because it was driving me wild. Uh, as a as a black woman, uh, there's nothing more triggering than seeing a, another black woman get her hair wet. Mm-hmm. It's an emotional trigger. I feel PTSD whenever I see it. So whenever that was happening, and she got wet multiple times, so many times. She has a, <laughs> she's a silk press in this movie, which is like so damaging to your hair, and yet she has no regard for it. And that's why I think this is a black. It's a black uh, wish fulfillment, fantasy fulfillment film, because there is no other black woman that is, if I had a magic lamp that could grant me one wish, it would be that I could get my hair wet and it would always go back to being flat ironed the same as it was. (laughs) That's the one wish that every black woman has always wanted, which is, it doesn't matter what I do to my hair, my edges are going to be laid. My hair is going to be flat. It's going to be bone high. Think of never having to wear a bonnet ever again. Never, never having to tie, never having to do a protective hairstyle, never having to do, you know, grease my edges down, never having to do that stuff ever again. And she never has to worry about it. Nope. (laughs) And it gets so, so much so that in that bathtub scene, where, like, as we see her in the bathtub, which, again, this felt like, an 80s horror movie 
where somehow yeah. the final girl is always in the shower. Like, regardless of what happens, she ends up either in the shower or in the lake. You yeah. know, and so we see Megan Good fully in the bathtub, and she starts, like, going underwater. And I was like, okay, first of all, yeah, I, I do not know any black woman who does that. But she comes <laughs> out of the water and is interacting with Dennis Quaid within minutes. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so It's ridiculous. I mean... This movie really reminds me a lot of, like, the, the 90s sex thrillers. Yeah. Um, you know, like, how there were so many of these movies of, like, women lurking in the shadows. And it, it reminded me a lot of these, which I've always said I, I wish would come back. I wish we had more of these, like, sexy thrillers that we had in the 90s. It seems like there was somebody who wrote about this a while ago. But they were saying that we don't have those kinds of movies because we're all like man children. Uh, we're not mature enough because hmm. we don't have like we're we're not mature enough for those kinds of films. Those films like um, oh my goodness, Fatal Attraction, Single White uh, Female, <laughs> Single White Female, True Lies, um, those kinds of movies we don't have anymore. We have. Uh, we have, I don't know, hot tub time machine. We have like, um, <laughs> we have the, uh, the long shots. No, it was, a, it was a romantic comedy and Rebel Wilson, Rebel Wilson. Yes. What was her last movie called? Oh, uh, 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 I can't remember, but it just, you, you said rom-com and I suddenly muted your microphone. So, um, wow. Shade. <laughs> it was called, isn't this romantic? Of course it was. Uh, <laughs> those are the kind of movies that we get we don't really get like grown-up sexual we don't really get grown-up sexy anything this movie was hardly a grown-up sexy anything <laughs> no <laughs> i mean yes they were having sex constantly um but it was in the most like um it was like a guy who maybe hasn't had sex in a really long time and is like this is what i imagine it would be like uh, it was like a music video. It was like an R&B music video. Yes. Uh, Which I think is why I liked <laughs> that first sex scene on the counter. Because it reminded me yeah. of like a genuine video. Yes. You know, or a Joe video. And I was like, okay. It was. Oh, my God. Deion Taylor missed his mark. If he had if he had been a director in the 90s, making 90s R&B videos, he would have cleaned up. Mm -hmm. He would have most prolific 90s R&B. This man has no business making full-length feature film. <laughs> he <laughs> should have been making like two minute, 30 second, or maybe four minute, you know, because he has to do like the lead up. And I was like, you you know that all of those R&B videos that we were talking about with D'Angelo and everything, <laughs> those were like four minutes. And I was like, okay, we do not need a story in this music video. <laughs> a Drew Hill video where mm -hmm. they are the tears and also <laughs> man in the iron mask <laughs> yeah which is my favorite drill video of all time it is an amazing video <laughs> so i mean he that's exactly what this feels like and that's exactly what this feels like and i don't understand he's already got two movies i think in production after this which is wild because the numbers for this movie cannot be high this movie <laughs> must have been made for like under a million dollars at a, a stick of gum. Like, you know, and I have no clue <laughs> who's going to watch this movie and how much, especially because of the fact that they released it a week after Endgame. 
which tells you something. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that, yeah, on the show a couple weeks ago with Tim and Jess. Every movie that is coming out right now, they yeah. knew Avengers Endgame was dropping, and they are like, listen, man, like, we just got to release this thing and <laughs> and go for it. I mean, it's not the same audience at all. It is the exact opposite of Endgame. It is your auntie who's like, Iron Man's, Spider-Man's. <laughs> right. No, you know, and it's coming out during, it's like Mother's Day weekend. Um, it is exactly for your mom or your auntie or your grandma who wants to go to the movies but doesn't want to see nothing with no mans flying around, no special effects. I don't want to see none of that. I want to see Michael Ely kissing on some cute girl and a white man dying, and that's <laughs> it. And, and the movie is wild, but he has two new movies. His whole genre, Deion Taylor's whole genre, is like thrillers and horrors, and I think he has a horror coming out and a thriller, but he makes the same movie. Yep. I'm fascinated by this man. I, I cannot wait until the next Dion Taylor movie. I'm I'm there. This, who's he making these films for and why? Yeah, I mean, and it kind of it looks oh. as though it is kind of the Blumhouse model where so the yes. intruder cost eight million dollars, which for a feature okay. length Hollywood movie with named actors in it is yes. nothing. Is <laughs> so nothing. even if it yeah. makes 20 million back. Money, like money in the bank, like that. That's wild. Eight million dollars is really like a a low low budget film. Like yep. indie directors, indie filmmakers, who like people that you that you know who are like, I have a great idea for a script. They make films for eight million dollars, which is nothing. Um, I just don't get it. His films say nothing. They have no message. <laughs> They have no point. Um, I don't know who they're for. Um, I mean, Traffic was the same. Exact I was gonna say movie it was the same this. movie. It was the prequel. All right, sure. <laughs> I don't get it, and yet I am intrigued. First of all, I'm just happy that a black director is getting his films made, which is like huge. That's yep. a huge deal. Um, but how do you make a movie that has no message? in 2019 i guess that's why that's why it's fantasy because of the fact that sometimes as a black person you don't want you don't want a, a message in your films you just want to see action you yeah. know you just you just want a movie that has lots of stabby stabby and sexy sexy and you don't really want to think during a movie um and this and this, this deliver this delivers I, on on that so uh with that in mind so, the official rating for this podcast, if this is your first time listening, there are only three choices. No letter grades, <laughs> no stars. The three choices are good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something that you would recommend to a friend. A bad film is not really something that you regretted sitting in a theater for two hours for. Ugly, avoid at all costs. So, The Intruder, directed by Dion Taylor, with Dennis Quaid, Megan Good, and the devil Michael Ely. Isabella Price, what do you give The Intruder? Uh, this might be a hot take, but I give it a good. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good movie. I think it's a good movie that you see when you're drunk uh, with a group of friends, uh, girlfriends, uh, you know, maybe some non-binary friends, some gay friends, and you get together 
and you have a bunch of junk food and some takeout and some some dark liquor or maybe some Chardonnay, uh, and you watch this terrible, terrible movie with a friend, but you laugh and you and you cry. Uh, and you're just closer for it, and the world is healed, and Dion Taylor is solving racism through this film. He is doing so the damn thing. I give it a, a, a good, a good on top of a good. Wow, okay. Um, even though I knew you were going to do that, still surprised me. <laughs> uh, my official rating for The Intruder is bad. This is, this is, this is just a silly, ridiculous movie where... The jump scares in this are just bizarre. <laughs> like, this is not like a horror jump scare where you were, like, waiting and building up tension. This one is just creepy. And Dennis Quaid, like, there were multiple times when Izzy and I both sitting in the chair, like, we kind of brought our jackets up to our face. We were like, this just makes me feel uncomfortable. Like, it was just, ugh. Uh, but, yeah, this is bad. If it is on Netflix and you want to have a movie night, go for it. But... To see this in the theater, if you see this in the theater, go with friends. Like, just just have a yeah. night of it. Wait for the cheap theater. <laughs> Do not pay full price for this. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it gets it gets a bad uh, from from me. So we're we're split on that. Good and bad. That's yeah, that's fine. That's uh, fine. It's good humanity. The, <laughs> there we go. A balance. Uh, moving on <laughs> to the last movie review of this episode. Uh, the Izzy was unfortunately unable to go see, so I was able to see Tolkien, which is the new biopic starring Nicholas Holt uh, as the titular J.R.R. Tolkien. During his kind of formative years, it fast tracks a bit. We see him as a boy. We then see him as an orphan who then, as kind of happened back then, you know, being Catholic, they kind of brought him in. The priest set him up with a family to live went to this boys' school. So it goes from there. We get maybe a third of the movie with him being a boy, and then it becomes his adolescence, you know, his t 20s when he is at Oxford. So Nicholas Holt plays J.R.R. Tolkien. Lily Collins plays his love interest, Edith Bratt. And this is directed by a Icelandic director who I have no idea how to pronounce his name. I'm going to go Can't with wait. Dome Korakoski. Nailed it. Crushed it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, this biopic is slightly different than other biopics. So, I love the biopic genre. I love documentaries. This is a very glossy biopic. And when I say that, it is because some people like their biopics and their documentaries kind of gritty. And they want to know, like, the deep, dark stuff that formed this character and... You know, that was one of the complaints, oddly enough, with the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor. I knew people who did not like it because they were like, well, he was just a good person and they didn't really go into anything. And I was like, yeah, some people are just good people. I know it is weird, but, you know, the Mr. Rogers documentary, like, there was nothing to dig are into. You serious? Yeah. Like, with Mr. I, Rogers, I, that, that was not, there was no deep, dark secrets. There were no skeletons in the I closet. Who are these people that want a dark, gritty Snyderverse of Mr. Rogers? Who who are these monsters? Yeah. And so, so the difference with, with Tolkien is that, yes, it, it keeps things pretty surface level as far as the love story and the love interest and the, the bonding 
that he developed with his boys that he grew up with, went to school with, then went to Oxford slash Cambridge with for some of them. But when it does go gritty, it is brutal. Because one of the things with J.R.R. Tolkien that some people do not know, he was on the front lines in World War I in the trenches for four months. Like, that is madness, especially with World War I. It is. It was a brutal war where mustard gas was being used, and it was it was awful. So when it flashes back to those scenes in World War One, which it does a few times, like it was it was harsh. One of the only reasons in one of the documentaries that they did about Tolkien, one of the only reasons that he survived the war is because he got trench fever from being in the trenches, and it was apparently spread by lice back then. I mean, because you were in the trenches, in mud, in rain. Like, it was disgusting. So he got trench fever and was sent to the hospital away from the front lines. And that very well is could be the only reason that we even know who he is. Wow. So this movie does go into parts of his life like that. But in general, it is pretty surface level. Really good love story. And again, I do not like rom-coms. I do not like romances. Because generally they are just just saccharine, just way too sugary, sweet, and dumb, and predictable. Um, This one, like, I legitimately got choked up a couple times in this, partly because I love Tolkien as a person, like, some of his philosophies, and obviously his, all of the books that he did, all of his works. So, it definitely got to me a couple times. It did not go into his kind of cantankerous relationship with C.S. Lewis. It did not... (laughs) I would have loved for that to happen. Yeah, like they, wow. they did not get along for a long time. And it was this weird yeah. beef between intellectuals at the time. But one of the other things that Tolkien did in his real life that they did not go into is during the rise of Nazism, the Nazis loved Tolkien because mm-hmm. his early works were very Germanic. They were Norse kind of stories. And the German Nationalist Party was like, Oh, we like this guy. We like this guy a lot. I mean, that still happens, though. There's still white supremacists that really grab hold on to uh, to Tolkien stuff as this kind of like, look how great Western literature is when you don't have anybody brown inside of it, you know? Um, and uh, which is why I'm so interested because, you know, they're making the Lord of the Rings TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, which is going to hopefully fill the Game of Thrones hole in everyone's hearts. Yes. <laughs> uh, and there's already been rumors about the casting calls for it. And the casting calls are diverse. They are asking for everyone of all backgrounds to come in and start doing the casting for that film or for that show mm-hmm. of which some at uh, uh, some white nationalists were not very happy about. Um, uh, yeah. And they, the- yeah, and they could definitely, they could go in interesting directions with the TV show. I talked about it before, but to not deep dive into the lore of Lord of the Rings, but because they're doing it in the Second Age and the fall of Numenor, which is where Aragorn's bloodline comes from, they could definitely, if <laughs> if they wanted to, they could show a bunch of different diverse people and still make the, the white nationalists happy because all of them died, and now we only get the other people that we know from Lord of the Rings. You know, wow. <laughs> but I'm saying like they could do interesting things. But when when that was going on, when Nazism was rising back then, 
the publisher, a German publisher, wanted to publish The Hobbit. And to do that, they wanted to publish it in German and contacted Tolkien. And they were like, cool, we want to do this. We want to publish a book. We'll translate it. You just have to claim you're Aryan and make sure you say that all the time. Yikes. And he was like, no, absolutely not. So he banned or barred, I guess, whatever term we're talking about, the publishers, the book being translated into German at that time because of those clauses. So that was real life. The movie does not go into it because that would be kind of yeah. a bit heavy for the story they were trying to tell. Um, the what, Tolkien. What I mean, what was that? What's the? What do you think the the purpose of releasing this movie right now is? I think some of it is to really talk about and to glamorize a key author that has not really not much has been done just about him. We know all of his works, you know, but the man himself, the person who created this, and not just the man himself, his partner, Edith Bratt, plays a huge part in this story. Even though the Tolkien estate, who is notoriously difficult to work with, and they did not want the new Hobbit movies being made, it was a huge legal mess, they adamantly refused to be a part of this production. The director of this, like, even talked about it, like, he was like, I reached out to them. I would love for them to see it, for us to talk about it. Nothing. Like, they admonished their connection to this. They are like, we have nothing to do with it. So I get being protective of your father or grandfather or great-grandfather's legacy. But at the same time, if somebody is making a movie about this person, that is your opportunity as a family member to be like, hey, here is our input. But instead, they adamantly refused involvement. So that was interesting they refused involvement for this film yes for tolkien oh that's interesting see honestly i don't know if it's just because of the fact that i'm so jaded um but i thought that this was just supposed to be a tie-in for the the new series like that they're just trying to make some buzz before that series happens um because one is it, it's being released uh, when this weekend, next weekend. Uh, it is releasing next weekend, so the tenth. It's being released uh, at the same time as Endgame, uh, which is a little strange for me because of the fact that there is massive crossover between fans of comic books and fans of Lord of the Rings. It's mm -hmm. kind of, there. There's a huge layover between the two of them, um, and so doing that is really strange. Um, if, if I, if I had worked in the, uh, in the marketing department of what company released this? I think this was Fox Searchlight, I, I think. Okay. Uh, if I had done it, I would have, I would have released this movie at the end of Game of Thrones. Like as soon mm. as Game of Thrones yeah. did on TV, I would have released this movie as a way of being like, oh, you're so sad. Game of Thrones ends on No More Dragons. Okay, well, guess what? We got some Tolkien for Tolkien's gonna gonna swaddle you like a baby, like a like a cold, icy White Walker baby, and just let you suckle on his the teat of his imagination. You know, it, that would have been, and then I would have put all the advertisement and all of the marketing into ads for people who watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. That, 
made more sense for me. Um, other than them kind of like sliding this movie in after Endgame, that doesn't. I don't. I, I don't know. I don't really get it. Um, it. It seemed like I have a question for you since I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Is this movie sepia toned? It is. <laughs> the movie no. seems. Uh, it, it it is <laughs> like not, but that would definitely Instagram fit. Filter all. <laughs> that would definitely fit the the tone of this, but but it is not. It is a historical movie, you know. And these are the even though okay, he, but is it amber colored? No, not it, there are some scenes oh, like that, okay. but no, not the whole thing. Okay, okay. Uh, but yeah, to kind of see where he came from, Tolkien. I mean, he was an orphan to then. Mm getting to Oxford and becoming a professor at Oxford. And he actually did not even want the books to be published as kind of this, these stories. He mainly was just, he was such a fan of writing languages. That was all he was doing. He was essentially writing dictionaries of different languages and of the myths of these worlds. And then after the Hobbit, he was like, all right, like, let me try and not let me try. But let me just tie these stories in together with this mythology that I already have been creating for the past 30 years. So those parts were fascinating. Um, I personally wish they had gone a little bit more into the stories of, you know, the Hobbit and things. But I get that they were just trying to talk about the man and not necessarily his works as far as those those well-known works. Yeah. I I just I mean I get the why I get why make a film about this this man and his legacy, um, I just don't understand the how or the what I guess <laughs> I don't understand <laughs> I don't understand releasing it wide instead of releasing it. Um, it would have, I, I think digitally, it would have made sense to release it on a on a Netflix. I don't, I mean, do you think that you need to see this movie wide? I, I think seeing it in a theater is great. And I also think uh-huh. that the different type of press they are doing with this. So next week, there is a fan event in New York uh, moderated by Stephen Colbert, who is one of the biggest Tolkien fans biggest, on the planet. Yeah. So uh-huh. like he is moderating a panel with the cast, and then they're showing the movie. So they're doing this with kind of an indie approach to it. They're like, listen, we know exactly who our base is. We're just targeting them. So yeah. it makes sense for that. It does have some scope to it, which is great to see on the big screen. Uh, so, yeah, so I definitely would still would think that the marketing behind it with theater makes sense. So are they going? They're not. They're not going wide release. Are they going limited release? No, they're going wide. I believe on on the tenth. Oh, that that's interesting to me. I I don't really I don't really get that. I don't get a wide release. I definitely get a limited release, or for them to release it on to Hulu or something like that. I don't really get a wide. Um, I mean, the, and they're waiting a wide release nationally with Avengers right now. That still only might be a few hundred screens. But yeah. it still is not the indie approach, you know, limited release yeah. of 200 screens nationwide. So I definitely think that, right. I mean, this for Tolkien fans who want to know a little bit more about him, this will this will fill that gap. For people not knowing anything about him, I think this is a great entry 
into his okay. life. And then at the end of it, if you want to dig more into it, they do something at the end of this that I people have heard me rail about with documentaries and biopics especially. At the end of your biopic, show us real pictures of the people in the movie. Because it immediately <laughs> humanizes it and being like, hey, yeah. these crazy stories that you just saw for two hours, this is who they really are. And especially, like, show his... Uh, World War One like enlistment photo. Show how young he was in the trenches yeah. of World War One. Show Edith Bratt. But again, I understand why they cannot do that because the Tolkien estate was probably like, oh no no, there will be no pictures. Right. Um. So it does end yeah. with some like some capstones of like J.R.R. Tolkien went on to blah. You know. So we get a few lines talking about the characters. But for me, as a biopic fan. I just love seeing pictures yeah. because then it just it reminds you this really happened. Especially since none of those people look like the characters like Nicholas Holt does not look like J.R.R. Tolkien at all. Um, yeah, not, not much. Uh, but I do think Nicholas Holt does a great job. And I think that he is in this weird position where he did like Mad Max Fury Road, got a lot of acclaim and recognition. Then he did the X-Men movies, and then he is kind of in this weird space right now. Well, no, he was in The Favorite, which was huge. That got him a lot of attention. It did, yeah. So I, I hope that like people kind of keep putting him in other things to raise his profile, because like he is good. He was great in The Favorite also. Like I like Nicholas yeah. Holt quite a bit. Yeah, same. He is also a very uh, mid-sized drink of, drink of milk. <laughs> Uh, he also has yeah a satisfactory size size of mouth. Uh, he also has beautiful baby blues. Obviously, that's my one weakness. Um, uh, one weakness. One <laughs> weakness. Many weaknesses. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think going back to your point though, I I just don't believe. And please correct me if you think that I'm wrong, uh, which I know you will. But um, uh. I don't think there's that many Tolkien fans to warrant wide release. I just, I have maybe a handful of friends that have actually read The Lord of the Rings. Like that is a level of nerdery that not many of us meet. Um, so I, that's that's what I mean when I'm, when I kind of, when I when I kind of bristle at this wide release marketing, I what's going on with that? Where I'm sort of lost um, is I don't really think there's that many Tolkien fans out there. There's a handful. There's a lot of. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, so, uh, Miss Price, uh, I'm raising my hand in the back of the class. Uh, <laughs> yes, John, you have a you have something to say. Uh, to I would I would never say that you are wrong. I, I, I would I just would not do that. Thank you. You are very mistaken. Um, oh. <laughs> I think there are a ton of Tolkien fans. And again, I think that because they are marketing this in, yes, in a weird time, but getting somebody like Stephen Colbert, something like that, like they know that the Tolkien fans are going to see this. And the yes. budget of this, like it was probably, I mean, it is a period piece and period pieces always cost crazy money because literally everywhere you put the camera costs money. Like that is one thing that people forget about period pieces, especially like early 20th century, every piece of clothing, 
every car you see, every watch you see, like everything costs money. Uh, on Box Office Mojo, they have not put up the production budget yet. Um, but I think this movie easily makes its money back on just the sheer fact that Tolkien fans are going to see this. And for the people who do not want to see Avengers and they want to see something different, go see this. After the fourth time you have seen Avengers, go into the theater and see Tolkien. Um, that is... I don't I don't doubt that there are Tolkien fans who will definitely go see this movie. I think even if you had every single Tolkien fan in the country go see this film, I still don't think it's going to be enough. I, I just don't. Um, but uh, we shall see. I, I, I'm very curious to see uh, who's... Who's has who has the best uh, uh, movie intuition? Mm. That's that's what. I'm so we we both put on our uh, Negro Damas hats, um, and <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to the future of this. So, but yeah. So if it was not Adam or you know obvious already, my official rating for Tolkien is good. Uh, I really enjoyed this. It was emotional at times. The war scenes, which I generally avoid movies with 20th Century War because I just do not like it. It feels too real. World War II, mm-hmm. World War One, is a war that we really do not get that many movies about. People are obsessed with World mm-hmm. War II. World War One, it just, yeah, I mean, it was a vicious, brutal, chemical yeah. warfare style of combat that was just hard to yeah. see. And recognizing that he did this. Like, he was there on the front lines. And his journey on the front lines trying to find his friend that he grew up with is the Sam and Frodo journey, like through Mordor, like, oh. you know, and so, okay. yeah. so, and there are some very obvious, uh, references. Like at one point he is looking at a lamp and in the reflection, you see like the one ring, you know, so, but they're subtle enough where you can pick up on it, but it is not an in your face. You know, like, I am thinking of a man, you know, you know, all of this. So, yeah. Yeah. So it was. They gave you fan service. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was uh, a good from me Uh, to wrap up the episode because we are going a little bit long. uh, The Seattle International Film Festival is quickly approaching. Uh, It starts officially on May 16th and goes through June 9th. The press screenings already started. They start two weeks before the festival, so essentially for two months, it just, it is madness. Uh, So we went to the press launch for this, where they announced that this year, there are 410 films being shown, 86 countries, 146 features, 71 documentaries, 176 short films, and 12 archival prints that they have that they will be showing. This is insanity. <laughs> I'm a little overwhelmed by all of the films that are out there and everything that I I really want to see. And I don't know if I'm going to be able physically to psychologically or emotionally be able to handle all of these films. But we'll see. Yeah, it is. It is pretty crazy. It is opening. Uh, the opening night film is Sword of True Sword of Trust. Sorry, by Lynn Shelton and Mark Marin. Uh, they're going to be in town uh, for that opening. 
Uh, so look forward on the About to Review podcast. Uh, I am scheduled to interview both of them uh, while they are in town. So that should be interesting. Sif, when it rolls into town, not only is it daunting to try and see as many as we can, but also interviews that happen at random times. So it will be a little bit crazy. I am excited for the tribute to Regina Hall. Uh, mm-hmm. That should be really interesting. And then we saw a trailer for a movie that I cannot wait to see called uh, Stardust Brothers from Japan. Yay! Yes! <laughs> this is a like this is a, a print that they kind of found, that they acquired this 80s Japanese rock opera that the trailer just blew me away. And I was like, this yes. is my kind of insane. Yeah, it looks crazy. It looks like a... Um... Yeah, like a crazy rock opera, kind of a Rocky Horror Picture Show inspired, um, kooky. Uh, God, yes, I'm so excited for this movie. Even the trailer was weird. Like yeah. <laughs> they had it inside of this little TV. It was so strange, and I cannot wait um, to go see it. I'm just looking forward to the genre films. I mean, that's kind of what I'm trying to focus on this year is just seeing as many horror films as I possibly can. Um, one of the ones that I'm really excited for is this movie called In Fabric, which is a UK film about a cursed dress. Um, and it has this uh, lead actress from Japan, or from Japan, oh my goodness, from the UK that I'm really, really excited about. Um, there's Knife Plus Heart, which has been getting a, um, a, a lot of buzz on the festival circuit, which is a queer giallo film. Um, oh, right. Giallo films making a, a comeback this year with the new, well, this year and last year with Suspiria. Um, in, in Fabric is also a giallo inspired kind of a thing. Uh, we have Nightmare Cinema, which has actually been um, Shutter Films released it last year. It's a series of five shorts from Horror Masters. Um, including one of my favorite horror directors, um, whose name I cannot pronounce. He's Japanese, and he made this movie called Midnight. Uh, Midnight. What is it? Meatball Midnight Murder oh, Train. Oh, uh, oh, no, not not Meatball Machine Kodoku from last year. Different um, guy. No, it's a different guy. Oh, okay. The other <laughs> Japanese film with meatball and machine in the title. Fair enough. Um, and yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. Some other films, uh, Dead Detectives, Here Comes Hell, which is uh, kind of a gothic uh, old haunted house film combined together with the uh, kind of it looks like the Evil Dead kind of a thing. We've got Coco di Coco da, which I want to see just based on the name alone. Uh, and Dark Delicacies is another film. They've also got some documentaries that I'm really excited to see. Uh, one is the John Galliano. Uh, oh, man, what's the name of it? It's like Fashion Freak or something oh, like right. that. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm very excited. John Galliano, uh, one of my, I mean, ev- the world's favorite fashion designer uh, in, in the entire, just at the peak of his uh, of his mastery of fashion. And so, but there's really not a lot of media that ever comes out about him, despite the fact that Galliano is like a, a master of fashion. There's not really many intros into his life. Last year, there was a documentary about Alexander McQueen's life, and it was just uh, amazing. 
it was called McQueen uh, and it just broke me apart. And I'm really fascinated by the world of fashion. Um, fashion is a bizarre, terrifying, cutthroat, bloodthirsty, soulless, beautiful, inspiring place. And I'm fascinated by with anybody who can survive in the fashion world. Yeah, what survive a, and what, thrive. Yeah, and I'm trying to go to as many parties that have free food as they, I possibly can. That's also my my goal. Free uh, food, free wine. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> speaking of which, at the press launch, this woman packed a plate like it was Easter Sunday at church. <laughs> she, Izzy has a plate that is four <laughs> inches high, stacked with sandwiches and charcuterie. Listen, and listen. <laughs> like my mama says, my mama says, never look a gift horse in the mouth. If they're offering you free wine, free food, and we had like 10 minutes to get, yeah. get wine, <laughs> get food, eat it, schmooze, talk to people. And I was, tr I was trying, I guzzled that wine down so fast. <laughs> I got a little sampling. They were like, oh, we're giving up this. I was like, what you got on this plate? What you got on this plate? I was eating everything. I, I'm just, I'm a broke college student at heart, you know? I went to art school. <laughs> oh, I, I absolutely get it. So cool. Yeah, so definitely look forward to both Izzy and I uh, working, you know, together with SIF in the, over the next multiple weeks. And I definitely will have Izzy on more than a couple times because with Sif being the monster that it is, I'm pulling people off the bench like a six man uh, who can help me cover this <laughs> this monster festival. You need another monster to help you cover this monster. Exactly. And speaking of, where can people find you and your work on the social media landscape? So you can find me. I run a... Uh, Oh God, an empire, some might say, uh, called Nocturnal Emissions. Uh, it's probably the only thing that you'll ever find on the internet called Nocturnal Emissions. Yep, only one. Uh, Number one search on Google. <laughs> with with your safe search on, uh, if it's not a doctor's website or something like that. Um, so I run a Twitter, at N-O-C-E-M-I-S-S, -S, Facebook, Nocturnal Emissions Show on Facebook. I have a podcast, the Nocturnal Emissions podcast, where I talk to people about horror movies, uh, the paranormal, unsolved things. I, I just had a necromancer on for my last episode, which I'm very proud of. And you can also find me on YouTube, which is what I was editing before I started uh, on this call. You can find me on my YouTube channel, uh, Nocturnal Emissions. Yeah, Excellent. I'm out there. And then IsabellaPrice.com. Yeah, so I'll be I'll be speaking at Crypticon tomorrow, um, and I'll be talking about representation in horror and also the haunted house trope. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah, catch me in your local cemetery, haunting places. I uh, <laughs> all of those links, including the cemetery, will be in the description below. Uh, as far as this podcast, so upcoming episodes. Uh, I will be seeing Detective Pikachu uh, next week uh, with Nick and Dyer of the Northwest Nerd Podcast and probably doing a little bit of a review with them. I will also be a guest on their podcast talking about Game of Thrones next week. Uh, that should be a lot of fun. And yeah, Sif is going to be devouring our souls over the next few weeks with amazing opportunities for interviews and screenings and so many things. 
So, but yeah, thank you everybody for for listening to this episode. Uh, thank you so much to Miss Isabella Price, the Oprah of the underworld herself. You're welcome. Uh, and yeah, all of her links will be in the description below. So for this week's episode, I have been joined by Isabella L. Price. And I have been your host, that guy named John. We will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.